you ever thought about breathing? How it has these sort of twin functions. Number one, it keeps you alive. If you stop breathing for long enough, we will all die. So it's something that we do in order to like maintain the life that is in us. The second function of it though is to sort of like illustrate that life is present. That if you want to know whether someone is alive or not, one of the things that you can do is go over, check if they're still breathing, and if they are, then you know that they're alive. It keeps a person alive and it shows that they're alive. And so it is with the church. So it is in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. Christ has sent his spirit on the church. God has come to dwell within his people. If you like, Jesus has breathed life into us. It's quite reminiscent, actually, to the description of Adam and his creation in Genesis chapter 2 of the dust of the earth, this sort of useless, in many senses, material being gathered together and then God, by his spirit, bringing life where it didn't exist before. So, if Pentecost is the story or the revelation that Christ has breathed life into his church, then it should sort of follow that we'd be able to look to the church look at the church and see certain things which are symbols to us, evidence that the church is alive, but also to see things which keep us alive, keep us invigorated. And at the end of Acts chapter 2, that's exactly where Luke goes. In Luke's um, account of the early church, chapter 2, starting at verse 42. They, that is, the disciples and all those who came to believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus at Pentecost, they, it says, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In this short little section, I think we see four actions. I think we see two attitudes and we see one description of addition. Four actions, two attitudes, one addition. If you don't like A's, then perhaps you can think of it in terms of D's. There were four doings, two sort of demeanors for the church and this description of the um, duplication that goes on. Well, what about those four actions, the four doings? Well, let me just say, first and foremost, if you want to think more about this, then please go and grab Jamie Hurd or go and listen again to the sermon that he preached at the start of the year on this passage. He unpacked it for us um, and helped us to see these four things which became obsessions for Christ's followers in those early days. 
for this morning, I just want us to see and to note that they were people who were utterly committed to the apostles' teaching. That is sort of, in a sense for us, God's word, the Bible. That they were committed to fellowship, sharing with one another. That they were committed to celebrating the good news, breaking bread, acting out the gospel. And they were committed to worshipping God. It mentions them praying and praising. They wanted to learn more about Jesus. Twice the apostles are mentioned here. First in terms of the things that they taught. And secondly, the, the wonders and the signs that they performed. You see, the, what they taught and what they did go very closely together. Think about Pentecost so far. We've seen this miraculous outpouring. A miraculous demonstration that the Spirit has been poured out. And Peter stands up to speak. The manifestation of God with us. The results of the good news of what Jesus has done. The life-changing, world-transforming things that Peter got to speak about should be seen, shouldn't it? And so the church became utterly obsessed with, utterly committed to understanding more of who Jesus was and what he had done, the difference that it made in their lives and seeing that worked out and lived out around them. Signs and wonders accompanying this proclamation of the truth. Jesus Christ has come, he has lived, he has died, he has risen to life again. We are part of God's family now that he dwells with us and that should change everything. So they were committed to God's word and began to experience deeply changed lives, lives which looked supernatural to those around them. They were also committed, it said, to sharing everything. It says fellowship in my translation, which can be a bit of a dry word to us, but it has this sense of having all things in common. Now our minds are drawn very quickly to a kind of the properties and the possessions that they have. That's what it says that they sold in order so that others would not be in need. But that word fellowship has a much broader sense. They were committed now that they were one people. Now as we thought about last week, they had been brought into this new family. They were committed to having all things in common. That meant that they were very keen to share with one another, not just their treasures, their possessions and their property, but their time, their energy, their affections. They were involved in one another's lives. And actually the outworking of that, selling what they have so that there would be none in need, I think is one of the signs and wonders that accompanied, accompanied the pursuit of knowing and understanding Jesus more in the apostles' teaching in God's word. That radical generosity so that people were willing to empty themselves so that others could be filled up. They were committed to fellowship, to truly living out this family corporate identity that they had. They were committed as well to celebrating the good news. It speaks about them breaking bread. Now the communion, the Lord's Supper, can be understood in so many ways because it's a, it's a big, it's an important, it's a powerful meal. It's a means of God's grace to us. But one of the ways we can and should understand it is that it's acting out the gospel. It's retelling the gospel story of Christ's body broken, of his blood shed on our behalf. 
of how we go to him and we feast and we drink and we are filled up, we are nourished, we are sustained. What we need for life and celebration comes from Jesus. And so these early Christians, this first family um, in this age of the Spirit, they took opportunities to celebrate the good news, to centre on the good news, to focus together in and around Jesus and the gospel. They did it regularly to keep it central in their lives and in their relationships, formally in places like the temple courts, informally in one another's homes. They were committed to it, they were obsessed to it. And they worshipped God, it speaks about them being committed to prayers. Towards the end, it speaks about them praising God with one another. Their whole lives began and ended now, terminated on this Father that they have come to know because of Jesus. There's all these actions that are, that are realities in the life of the church. And it's a heck of a list. It's a heck of a list which shows us what a living, breathing church should look like. It's a heck of a list if it's things that we want to go to to think about. Well, what is a, a breathing church? How, how can we maintain that life in us? To be a people together who lift up God's word, who honour what the prophets of old and the apostles in the new have spoken to us. Um, the, uh, not just that, but a people who are committed to um, sharing with one another, investing in each other's lives, who have been so transformed by what Jesus has done that me and myself and, and taking care of myself isn't of primary concern, but willing to hand over that which God has given us for the benefit of those around us. That there are people celebrating the good news, breaking bread, bringing to mind, calling to mind regularly the truth about Jesus. And they worshipped God. They prayed, they celebrated, they praised him for what he has done and what he would do. It's a heck of a list, isn't it? Now imagine for a moment the opposite. Imagine a community of Christ followers who ignore God's word who have got no interest to go any further into Jesus and his gospel. Imagine a community of God's people where we're more interested in being on our own, looking after ourselves more than one another. Imagine a community where we never take time to celebrate or to express the gospel and we don't pursue God. It's such a sad picture. It's a picture of the opposite, which means it's a picture of a dead church. There are four actions, there are two attitudes or demeanours that are described in this passage as well. Things which are evidence of life, things which bring and give and sustain life in us. It says that the believers were filled with fear or filled with awe. Now, we don't really have a category for this in our modern minds. To fear something is to be scared of something. It is, is to want to, to keep at a distance from it. But fear in the Bible can mean that. But it can also mean this, this sort of coming to a more genuine realisation of the bigness of something. Scary or otherwise. 
And when it speaks about folks coming to fear God in the Bible, it has more this sense of reverent, joyful awe, that God is no longer a small thing in our minds, but his bigness, his otherness, his grandeur, his glory is increasing. And that fills us with reverent awe. Not so that we would be pushed further away, but that we would be drawn closer in. God was getting bigger in their eyes. That's what it means, that this attitude of awe towards God, because more and more they appreciated their smallness, and more and more they appreciated God's bigness. And that it itself leads to glad, sincere, humble, joyled, joy-filled hearts. That coming to see the bigness of God help them to see that God is the one who truly satisfied. That's what they looked like. They went about the place. They were happy. They gave thanks. They weren't flippant with God. Again, it's quite a picture, isn't it, of what a living church should look like and how a living church should seek to exist if it wants to maintain life. Once again, imagine the opposite. A dead church with no breath in her would be flippant towards God, apathetic about the gospel. That's what the enemy would have us be like. One addition, one duplication is described. The Lord, it says, added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's quite reminiscent to Jesus' promises in the Gospels, isn't it? I will build my church. Here is a description of this living church, this church that has been filled with the breath of life, this church which has had the Spirit poured out, in whom God has come to dwell. And Luke says, Luke notes, God is at work. He is the one who is adding to those alive people more and more people who are being saved, who are coming to life. Once again, imagine the opposite. A church where folks are just dropping off left, right and centre. There are no new people coming through to faith. There are just those abandoning Jesus. It's a great description. It's a challenging description too, isn't it? Of these four attitudes, uh, these four actions, these two attitudes, this one addition, these four doings, these... Uh, two demeanors and this one description of duplication that the church truly alive the church that has the spirit is breathing like this so what does it mean for us this morning what can we think about or, or how can we go away and ponder and perhaps respond well I think we need to ask the question are we still breathing Sure enough, Jesus has breathed his life into the church. But is there still, are there still these signs of life? Are we committed to these things which will keep us vibrant and healthy and alive? I think this morning genuinely is this opportunity for reflection. Not pointing the finger, because this isn't a me thing. 
This isn't for us to go away and say, am I committed enough to God's word? Am I committed enough to fellowship? Am I committed enough to the breaking of bread, to prayer and praise and worship of God? We might ask those questions, but it's not, it's not primarily a me thing. It's definitely not a pointing the finger at them thing. Oh, I can look out at the church and I don't think they're very much this. I don't think they're very much that. This truly is an us thing. An opportunity for us to reflect. Are we a people who cherish God's word? Are we a people who pursue Jesus in his word? Are we a people who are expecting our lives to be filled with the spirit-empowered um, difference that the gospel message brings? Are we a people who genuinely show care and concern and love and sacrifice for one another? Are we, is there evidence amongst us that we celebrate the gospel, that we cherish it amongst ourselves, that we take and create and craft opportunities to centre on it and to remind ourselves of it? Are we a people who begin and end with God, our Father, the one in whom we have been brought into a relationship? When people encounter us, do they look and do they see people who fear God in that reverential, joy, gladdened heart sort of way? Are we living for Christ so that others are coming to faith as well? It genuinely is an opportunity for us to reflect. Now, we actually did this on Wednesday, John and myself and Paul and Rachel, and we went through and we sort of scored what we, how we saw the church on all of these things. And of course, we were uh, uh, humble. We scored ourselves sort of lower than you know we might because that's a good Christian thing to do, not to think too highly of ourselves. But as we explained our scorings, I was also quite encouraged I was quite encouraged because there's an awful lot that goes on within our church that we simply take for granted. I'm asking the question, do we genuinely love and cherish God's word? And then thinking about, well, the times that we do gather, we gather and we look to, we turn to, we reflect, we seek God's encouragement and his challenge in his word all the time. Do we care for one another? Do we share with one another? And not just particular individuals in the church who have this gift of generosity, although they are there and it is a wonderful thing, but things like the kindness fund in the church, where we make this habit, where we make this practice of filling up a fund so that when people need help, when people need a pick-me-up, we are able to respond quickly and appropriately. That's there and it's wonderful. Do we take time to retell the gospel story, to organise ourselves, to focus in? We had to conclude that we do. Do we begin and end with God? Do we pray to him? Do we praise him? We think that we do. You know, there is much reverence in awe and joy in our church. And there have been additions. But one of the things that has been our fascination and our obsession as a church for the last couple of years is this idea of more, of wanting to know Jesus more, of wanting to make Jesus more known, of all these good things and these good directions that we are heading in, wanting it more and more and more and more. 
So the reflection for me is this, that we are headed in the right direction, that there are signs of life in our church, that we are doing the things that maintain life in us. But perhaps our breathing is shallow. Perhaps what we need to do is to pursue them more and more. And that means having these things on the agenda as a church, but individually valuing them, individually um, celebrating when they, when they make an appearance in the lives of our church. If I was to leave you with one challenge, it would be this, to reject the lies of the enemy, the enemy that wants to choke the life out of God's people, who tells us that God's word isn't important, who tells us that other people and their needs are not important, that tells us the lies of the enemy, that tells us you've responded to the gospel so you don't need to think about it anymore. The lies of the enemy that tells us that God doesn't care about our present situations. To reject those lies and to trust in the truth, the truth that the Spirit leads us into. Now we're going to be doing some things over the coming days. We've got more week um, coming up, starting today with a special Darganvod. There are events on Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday evening, Friday night. There are coffee caking companies Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. There'll be people going out into town and having conversations and what have you. These are just uh, a glimmer. These are just a drop in the ocean of what church is supposed to be doing in order to maintain life and to demonstrate life. And it all begins with trusting the truth, breathing in the spirit that God has given us, breathing out the gospel that the spirit leads us into, rejecting the lie and being a church like this church was when Christ gave birth to her on Pentecost. So it's an opportunity for reflection. It's an opportunity to encourage and to champion these things. It's an opportunity to pursue them for ourselves and to promote them in the body. It's an opportunity, I believe, to trust in Jesus, that he knows what it looks like for us to be truly alive.